beyond infinity. Let me introduce the two speakers today, uh, who I'm really grateful them to make making the trip down to Mornington from Melbourne, where they both work. Professor Tim Stanier of the Doherty Institute, warm welcome. Thanks, Piers. And also Professor Paul Johnson, Director of Research at Austin Health. Yes, thanks, thanks Piers. Thanks for, thanks for coming down, guys. And we've been talking a little bit off air already about, about possums, about Baruli, and, and Baruli is this flesh-eating ulcer which various people have been affected by on the southern peninsula. At the moment, the main area seems to be between Sorrento and Tutkaruk. But it was also known on the uh, Bellarine Peninsula where the numbers of de- well the number of human sufferers has declined. Mm-hmm. So now it's on the southern peninsula, and I guess one of the concerns is that it, it might spread north and get into the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne, and then you know have a, a much wider, a uh, bigger population of people, more density mm. to uh, to cause problems for. And I've actually got a friend who had a Baruli ulcer, and I've seen them. And I know that he was visited by scientists and uh, he was one of, um, I, don't know, I think it's several hundred people now who've been affected on the Southern Peninsula, but it was a you know, really nasty thing and it's given him a nasty scar. He's mm-hmm. got over it. Mm-hmm. And he was a builder who spent a lot of time down on his knees and he actually has resolved to wear knee guards now, uh, which he didn't. And I think he, wears, he uses gloves more than he used to. Mm-hmm. There are different theories about what causes Baruli one possibility was it came out of the dirt, but another is that it's uh, it's being spread by mosquitoes. And then, if it's being spread by mosquitoes, well, how did the possums? How did they get Baruli to start with? And not all of the the possums that are carrying Baruli have ulcers themselves. They could be being bitten by mosquitoes, and then the bacteria then gets passed to humans. So that's that's a, a pretty prevalent theory at the moment. But it still yeah. doesn't answer how did the mosquito, how did the possum population get Baruli to start with, which I was so, pretty interested. So uh, either of you guys want to jump yeah, in. Yeah, but I could I could just say, there are some key uh, yeah, unanswered there are some unanswered questions, Piers, that we have to wrap our heads around. Mm. But things that we have good solid evidence for now are that possums carry the bacteria that causes Baruli ulcer, Mycobacterium ulcerans and mosquitoes do as well and you know disease transmission to humans occurs when you know we have lots of infected possums and plenty of mosquitoes and plenty of humans all coming together in the one area which is you know what we found at point lonsdale and now most recently on the mornington peninsula there's that more sort of fundamental question about how did the possums get the bacteria how do they uh, and we don't have an answer to that but that doesn't mean we can't stop the spread of the disease knowing what we know now Mm. possums mosquitoes and humans now if we can interrupt that chain of transmission say for instance by controlling mosquitoes then we can stop the spread of the disease without knowing all the answers Uh, and that's sort of where we're up to with our research project is that we have enough strong evidence to intervene and paul might want to comment here as he's led much of the research that's got us to this point but it's yeah we don't have all the answers but we have some key answers that allow us to intervene and that's sort of where we're up to with our research project paul did you want to add to that yeah i I think it's an interesting question is do we know everything and the answer is no we don't know everything um do we know something well we've been working on it for a long time um with uh, financial support from the department of human services over 10 to 15 years and we really got involved initially at Phillip Island and then a bit later on the Bellarine Peninsula. And it was there that we uh, systematically started testing environment samples from all over the place 
by, by a method we call PCR, which is amplifying bits of DNA. Mm. It's the same test you have. If you go to your doctor with an ulcer and they want to check to see if you've got Beruli, they take a swab and they send it off for this particular type of PCR, and that's the same thing that we've been doing on the environment. Right. And for quite a long time, we were kind of stumbling around and finding a little bit of water was positive, a little bit of dirt was positive, you know, and we really couldn't fit it all together at the point in Point Lonsdale anywhere. At the same time, the human cases were increasing. But we changed the way we do the PCR, so we ended up with a quantitative method. Um, this was work led by my colleague Janet Fife, and what that meant is you can, instead of saying yes, no, which was the original version, yes, it's positive, no, it's negative, now we could do warmer, cooler. So we could find out how much DNA from, from Mycobacterium ulcerans, which is the bug that causes Borreliosis, is present. And we stumbled across one day this incredibly strong signal that was thousands of times higher than we'd ever had before. And that was a possum excretor sample. And so after that, we started going around Point Lonsdale and we were able to find that about one out of two possum excretor samples detected on the ground, this is way back in around 2008, mm. were PCR positive. And we were really stunned by that. And it also kind of explains why... Well, it probably explains why you also find a bit of signal in dirt and soil and other things because there's so much possum poo in soil as well. What are your theories on, on why it declined over on the Bellarine and then appeared on the Mornington Peninsula? And I know because I went to the... Uh, both of these gentlemen, by the way, were, were um, present at the, at the Rye Community uh, Town Hall meeting. And I'm just going to introduce... <laughs> Cheryl Ann Brody yep. is, is she does another program at, at uh, the station here. She's also been in touch with Rebecca Elliott mm -hmm. about getting you guys in. So she's just sitting in on, on the on the interview. And if she mm -hmm. wants to, you want to throw something in, then do. But yeah, sure. we're just talking a little bit about origins and mm -hmm. and some of the questions I guess that came up that maybe didn't get a chance to be answered at the right. at the Rye meeting. Sure. What are your theories on why it has declined? on the Bellarine and suddenly appeared over here. And I think there was talk about someone bringing them over in their car boot or something, bringing <laughs> possums over here or on two occasions. Was that, was that a real theory? It's, it, it's just gossip, but, right. but I've heard it several times. I think Tim has as well. Um, so we don't know that that's, okay. in a scientific sense, we don't know that that's true, but right. people have suggested that. Yep. But I think it's a bit like, you know, a good analogy is like a, a scrub fire. So the conditions on the Bellarine Peninsula and the Mornington Peninsula are very similar. You know, lots of people in the summer, um, lots of outdoor activities, lots of freestanding water, which helps mosquitoes, lots of possums living very close to people. But if there's no Mycobacterium ulcerans, which is the bug that causes Borrelia ulcer, nothing happens. But then somehow it's like a spark gets thrown in and then off it goes. So we know that before 2002, there were just no human cases of Borrelia ulcer at Point Lonsdale. But after that, it started. And it reached a really, I think it peaked in about 2011. And it is still there, but the number of cases is declining. We also know that before um, about 1990, there didn't seem to be any disease on the Mornington Peninsula. Um, and we know it really kicked off in 2012. So it's t that's my mental image of what's happening is the conditions are there, but nothing happens until the bacteria is in introduced. How is it introduced? I don't know. 
what happens when it is introduced? Well, then it gets amplified. So the number of possums increases, the amount of positive excreta in the environment increases, which then gets into the soil. But but it's from the possum excreta. That's what I think anyway. Then uh, somehow either shuttling between the possums themselves and humans directly. So the mosquitoes could be landing on Borreliosa lesions on the possums, and we haven't discussed this yet, but we do know possums can get Borreliosa at quite a high rate. We can talk about the evidence for that. But or, not every possum that's that's uh, the droppings of which has Borrelia in it has necessarily got ulcers. No, so if the science of that is that if you, if you walk around, so this is all published data, mm. if you walk around Point Lonsdale, um, in the mid-2000s, every second on average possum excreta sample that you pick up was PCR positive and quite strongly for mm. M-ulcerans, which causes Borreliosa. Mm. Then we had to get special permission and we worked with zoologists um, and we had ethics approval. We trapped 42 possums and tested them and took them back to a University of Melbourne place in Ocean Grove, anaesthetized them and took samples from them. And we found that about one out of four of them actually had lesions on them or ulcers on them, which you could swab and culture and prove all borreliosum. So that was a really big new finding that was published in 2010. And it's a public domain paper, so anyone can read it. So basically what it shows is that finding possum excreta on the ground can be supported by trapping the possums. And it looks like about a quarter of the possums at Point Lonsdale during that peak actually literally had the disease, not just carried it in right. their feces. Okay, wow. So that led to the, okay, the possums seem to have it, the humans have got it, but when you talk to people about how they get it, there's a hundred different theories. Mm. And, you know, I've got one patient who came in triumphantly one day and said, I know what it is. <laughs> I was pruning my lemon tree and a week ago I scratched my arm and look now, and, and he had just been diagnosed. But we know from careful science that the incubation period is about five months because it's human you get something horrible you remember it because it's a scary diagnosis to get and you think what was i doing last week mm. and you form a very strong view yep. about what it is and we so i was able to say we know that well i don't think you got it from your lemon tree and cue because that scratch was a week before the ulcer appeared mm. and in fact it takes about five months so, so you're not going to show any symptoms at no, all until that then. that's what the incubation period is that's the period between you when you are inoculated or when you're exposed and when you first notice it and then on top of that you have to add usually another month for something to happen that you're worried about and maybe even another month for your gp or other doctor to make the diagnosis so it's very long ago and people just can't remember accurately back that way so one way around that is you do a, what's called a case control study. And what you do with that is you give a questionnaire to people who have had the disease and a whole lot of controls, people who haven't had the disease, who live in the same area, and you ask them a whole bunch of questions. And that's actually being done currently on the Mornington Peninsula. But we also did that on the Bellarine Peninsula back in 2007. And all kinds of things like, are you, do you surf? Do you fish? Do you garden? Do you do this? Do you do that? Where do you go? Um, and then they feed it all into a great big computer program, which is called a logistic regression. Right. And it has one and zero is the outcome, meaning yes, Borrelia ulcer, which was one of the cases, or no Borrelia ulcer, which is a control. And then they look for all the things that seem to predict it. And they ended up with two clear things. One of them was 
if you reported using an insect repellent, your risk was less than half. And if you reported getting a lot of bites on your lower legs, the risk was more than twice. And not, all the not other just things... just any bites, Paul. These mosquito, are... mosquito bites, yes. Yeah. Um, so that was a specific question. And we also had questions in that questionnaire, like March flies and midges. Mm. And we had all... Because we didn't really know what we were going for. We just had a whole lot of ideas. And I think it was about a 12 or 15-page document. Case control study doesn't prove things. It, it suggests things. Yeah. It, it's not proof. Yeah. But we Could were, you get it by if you took some? If you took because there's so much possum droppings yes. everywhere, and they do fight their way into the soil. They get broken up, yes. and they, you know, if you turn over soil, then you'd be mixing in a lot, yes. of, a lot of possum droppings wherever you go. If you had an open wound and you grabbed a handful of possum droppings and you rubbed it into an open wound, can you get Borrelli that way? I, I think it's unlikely. So we've modelled that sort of exposure route in in the laboratory. Um, and we can't cause an infection in an ethically approved experimental you know, animal um, experiment. That's a lot of experiments in that sentence. Yeah. If you try in a controlled way, in a controlled laboratory environment, to replicate that scenario you just described, Piers, of an open wound, um, no, and you've loaded up with bacteria, no, you don't see disease. But the moment you introduce a penetrating injury, so if you take like a, a needle, with only a few bacteria on it, less than 10, and just push that through the skin, mm. then you'll establish a Borrelli ulcer. So it has to be some sort of penetration below the skin. Uh, it's not enough just to have an open wound with the bacteria. So it's so, got to get into the blood. It's got to uh, get into your... No, it, actually, you would have thought so. But, well, it, it, the disease is not caused by the bacteria replicating in the blood. The, the bacteria, right. they get into the subcutaneous tissue, mm-hmm. so relatively deep under the skin, mm. um, and they start replicating in... in so they stay localised. They don't go through your, that, your whole body. Well, they, the, they might go through your body and appear, you know, so they might be inoculated in your arm and then perhaps you might end up with an ulcer on your leg. We don't really know. But the, the weight of evidence is that you probably develop an ulcer at the site where the bacteria was introduced. Mm. Oh, and Paul, you might want to look at Well, we've of um, yeah, One of the uh, recent publications we've got from a collaborative research project that involved all the doctors on both peninsulas and in the city and at the Children's Hospital and at Austin Hospital and at Barwon Health and uh, Peninsula Hospital, everyone contributing, we mapped 649 cases of Borreliosa onto a single human form. And it was a student of ours, Arvind Yaramili, who's now a young doctor, who managed to show these really good pictures that you can see also um, online that's free-to-air science. And it's it's a heat map, and it shows you that the distribution of Borreliosa is just not random at all it clusters strongly around the backs of your calves around your ankles the forearms the backs of your elbows and it when you see the images you can kind of imagine that wearing shorts and a t-shirt is probably protective (laughs) because you don't see them that often in those parts of your body but you and you rarely see it on the palmer surface of your hand which is the part that comes in direct contact with the environment or the soles of your feet right but you often see it around the ankles which is where you get yeah. bitten. so now, it's again it's supporting the skin. it supports it now if you were in the garden and there was some possum excreta which is positive and you did inoculate that into your then i'm I'm quite confident if it was inoculated, not just sat on the top, that you probably could get Borreliosa that way too. But what we're looking at is what is the main way that most people get it? Because if we know the main way that most people get it, not 
you know, the occasional way that some people get it, but mm. th the predominant thing that's causing this epidemic, mm. then we can do something to stop it. Mm. And the evidence for mosquitoes is quite strong. You know, yeah. you find PCR positive mosquitoes where there are human cases. You find PCR positive possum excreted where there are human cases. If you go where there are no human cases, you don't find that. You still find possums and mosquitoes and humans, but you don't find the signal. So it seems that you need all of those things together. The bacteria has to be there. Then the people and the, and the mosquitoes need to get it and amplify it. Probably it's amplified between the mosquitoes, the environment and the possums and the humans are the unlucky spillover host who just happen to be there. The system would go on whether we were there or not. But I think our presence increases the density of possums because we provide shelter and support for them. So mosquitoes would would spread broadly between possums if they weren't spreading it also to humans? I think so, but it, it's possible that the possums, are once they get infected by you know cause unknown, which we freely admit we don't know, that they could amplify it between them because they recycle their feces. Yeah. They eat their own feces. Um, and they, that sounds horrible, but they do that because they need to extract the relatively low nutrients. So during mm. the day when they're in their drays, they eat their own feces. They feed it to their youngsters so that their youngsters will have the right bacteria they need to break down. It's like... Um, and so you like can imagine... the oh, sorry, repository. Yeah. Type. Yeah. <laughs> so you can imagine a kind of auto-amplification going on. That once it starts, it could... It could go with or without mosquitoes, possibly. Mm. Um, so the mosquitoes come in when you try to connect the possums to the humans because people with the disease rarely report having been bitten by a, by a possum or being jumped on by a <laughs> possum. There's some, it's always at a distance. So mm. something has to move it from the possum or move it from the environment which is contaminated with possum excreta to the human. And so we're looking for the, the main way. Not that not, we kind of, it, there may be two or three ways, but if there's one main way, that then gives us something to do about it. Are there any other diseases that, uh, that are dangerous to humans being passed around by possums, apart from Brulee? Uh, well, in New Zealand, yeah. where they are the recipients of Australian brush-tail possums. Um, most of what we're talking about here is really ringtails, yep. but it no, it's not exclusive. We do find really also in brush-tails as well. Right. But in New Zealand, they have got brush-tails. Now, they don't have... They do not have Borreliosa there. It's free of that disease. Mm. But they have a massive increase in the population of possums. They're declared feral species. Mm. And they can get tuberculosis, um, which is a human disease, but it's also a cattle disease. And they spread. This is in New Zealand, and it's uh, brush-tailed possums. I'm not talking about Melbourne or ring-tailed possums. And I'm not talking about tuberculosis here. But in New Zealand, some cattle are getting tuberculosis from grazing on grass where po possums have died. And so that's one of many reasons that New Zealand government and I think all New Zealanders want to get rid, get rid of them. Of them. Make, them into, make them into scarves <laughs> yeah, and yes. hats and, and gloves. Apparently they're also damaging native birds and na native bird habitats. And know. I heard some figure about the amount of the tonnage of, of green material that's consumed by possums mm. in New Zealand mm. every night and it's just unbelievable. Well, actually, know? I think, Piers, you know, the tonnage of foliage consumed by Australian possums in our suburbs would be very high as well. Yeah. And I know people are looking at, at that. Yeah, you know? well... Yeah. Yeah. Just look at tea trees down here, and apparently mm -hmm. the tea trees become more tasty. They become sweeter mm -hmm. the less leaves they've got on them because right. they're concentrating the oils mm -hmm. into less leaves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's why when trees start to get attacked by possums or eaten by possums, it gets worse and worse. It, it sort of amplifies, magnifies. 
so trees get wiped out and then they become dead mm-hmm. and then they're just sitting there as, as uh, fuel for a bushfire or... Mm. Might be um, worth, worthwhile. I have got a question, actually, oh, yes. if I can um, contribute. Um, um, have we considered in the, the research um, an Indigenous solution? Like, have we asked for an Indigenous advice as to what they would would do with, with the problem? There's many levels to that question. At the Rye public meeting, we shared the stage with an Indigenous person. She had some interesting ideas, but it's about whether um, you're talking about the disease or controlling mosquitoes or controlling possums. But I think the main thing about controlling mosquitoes is it, the we think that reducing mosquito bites will reduce the disease. Mm. But the way that is done, how it is done, doesn't matter right so if you can do it without using any anything that might other that people might be worried about for example hoverage spraying or anything that could affect bees for example that's still a good thing to do in terms of um, if you can knock down the mosquitoes by controlling the water sources by avoiding the use of these things we would still get the same outcome so is that what you were kind of getting no, at? it doesn't really matter how you control mosquitoes yeah yeah i understand that and as far as controlling mosquitoes, I think there's there's been a number of um, remedies for that over you know many years that have yeah. been proven to be quite adequate, mm. especially in the summer when we're yes. you know um, much like sunscreen, they're kind of used all the yes. time. Yeah. But further to that, like because of the the engagement um, with the unknown, so yes. that the the block of space that we're investigating. Still, I, I was intrigued as to whether there would be a consultation with an Indigenous group or body that may have input. I'd, I could say we'd be very receptive to that. And that's, that started, I guess, at, the, at that right public meeting where we were sort of introduced to one community leader, Indigenous leader. Yeah, who we found very impressive, actually. She had a really deep understanding of the biology of what's going on on the Mornington Peninsula. Mm-hmm. Mm. Just going to remind everyone who we, we've got in the studio. It's Professor Tim Stanier from the Doherty Institute and Professor Paul Johnson, Director of Research at Austin Health. The community meeting was interesting and I think definitely there was a majority of people there were quite concerned about the effect on possibly their veggie patch, mm-hmm. food that they might grow in their garden at home. They were concerned if they if they had a respiratory illness, if they were sort of elderly or infirm or or the young. Um, those were sort of a lot of the concerns. I'm just paraphrasing sure. that meeting, but I thought in some ways it was hard to get the science forward in the face of that kind of uh, overwhelming uh, concern that was there. And I think it's it, uh, to me it's kind of interesting because I think that there's there's going to be plenty of examples where society has to accept the science mm-hmm. um, and yet you know that can be really difficult to do from yes. the scientist's point of view so i think this is kind of like a, an interesting kind of case study yes. for other things that may crop up in in the future and probably have happened in the past as well well i think tim and i are both very sympathetic to the concerns that were expressed and we understand how people feel we also were responding to demands for action against Baruli ulcer so in the end this is a mm. local community problem and mm. the, uni- the the local community has to sort out the balance and the scientists can bring evidence and they can bring you know, solutions and different solutions cost different amounts of money mm. so that's really what the role of science is to bring evidence but i think when people get really upset and they get worried they they tend to reject 
everything, mm. not not just the part that is debatable. And you know, there are definitely arguments for and against mm. using these things, and perhaps it's better not to. And and the local people may yet decide that. And I think this was this was said at that meeting, but it is a it's a kind of balancing the health risk that that the what how real the health risk is yes. versus the effects of doing something like spraying or yes. fogging and that sort yeah. of stuff. Anyone who's been to Bali, they fog up there all the time. You, yeah. you sit there by the pool and there's a guy happily fogging the garden for mm. you and you're probably you're probably happy he's doing it because <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to get some yes. mosquito-borne illness, yes. dengue so, fever or whatever whatever's yeah. going around. Yes. So so it, it, I suppose it just depends on the context and and uh, and there was a, a, a petition that was put out there which I, I had a look recently I think they've got uh, 16,000 signatures people sort of saying that they didn't favor the fogging or spraying yes I suppose really what those people have to understand is that there's going to be a, there is potentially a trade-off in in making that um, taking that position or, or making or insisting on their their leaders or the Shire or elected well, representatives I think the people always had the power because it was always going to be as originally planned it was an opt-out so people could opt out and now it's been changed from that meeting um, to opt-in, so people have to opt-in. It just became clear that scientifically we were unlikely to be able to answer the question because there's just not, there unlikely to be enough opportunity. And then you're just spraying for no possible scientific benefit. So it seems so that at the moment will not go ahead this season. Just on that, my understanding was that the spraying was was kind of an experiment to confirm so that if you saw the numbers of human infections drop off post spraying, then that added weight to the idea that mosquitoes were the vector. Is it, that it becomes the final evidence that because we we're pretty convinced already that they are a major vector. You know, one of the most important ways of getting Borreliosa. But it it what would have said is this is what the government can now do or the Shire can now do. They can trust that spending money on controlling mosquitoes by what whatever means, which doesn't have to be ongoing spraying. It could be larva sighting. It could be local control source reduction. But but it's worth now doing that because we now know the final piece of, of evidence is there that this is where you should spend your money if you have a big Borrelli outbreak on your hands. Mm. That, so that was the idea behind it. And it was designed to be done sort of in a block randomised way. So some areas wouldn't be interfered with and others would be. And then you'd try to count the number of Borrelli cases from each area. That was the that was the idea. And then if it looked successful, whatever intervention it was um, that reduced mosquitoes successfully would be operate, offered to other people. But as I said, that's not going ahead this year and there are con community consultations going ahead. So there, what you said earlier is true. There's a risk. You've got to sort of balance risk against benefit. So if you're an individual person with Borrelia ulcer, then you take antibiotics for eight weeks, which are mostly well tolerated. Okay, so they're very strong antibiotics. But they are, they're special antimycobacterial antibiotics. You know, your urine goes bright orange from day one, oh, wow. which is one of Jeepers. the drugs coming out in the urine. Thanks for coming down, guys. Professor Tim Stanier of the Doherty Institute and also Professor Paul Johnson, Director of Research at Austin Health. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. Beyond Infinity. Thanks for listening. Remember to visit our program website, beyondinfinity.com.au, where you'll find our complete back catalogue of over 600 podcasts. That's beyondinfinity.com.au.